Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Weekly Word Podcast. I'm Chris Hout, AIM Coach, and this is episode 108. What is the Weekly Word Podcast? I discuss what athletes need to do in order to achieve their ultra-endurance goals. This is primarily for my athletes, the ones I coach, but most of this discussion is applicable to most any ultra-endurance athlete. I have found that the topics my athletes ask about want me to discuss or explain in more depth are what most ultra-endurance athletes are interested in as well. I try to discuss and educate on how to reach an outstanding fitness level, maintaining a strong mind and the mental resilience that comes with it, as well as overall health. I also try to deliver advice, observations, and tips for you, the listener. But beyond these specifics, I believe with outstanding fitness and good health, we also reach a certain happiness, a gratitude with ourselves and our daily lives. We feel connected and alive. Our body is working at a healthy, vibrant capacity, and this makes makes us feel fulfilled. This in turn makes us better people, spouses, partners, parents, coworkers, citizens, We are more patient, observant, accepting, and tolerant when we are healthy, fit, and feel good about ourselves. Simply put, it is bringing forth the best current athletic version of ourselves. Healthy in body grows to healthy in mind and soul. This surely radiates outward, making all those around us feel your health, joy, and happiness as well. And although this podcast is primarily geared towards the athletes I work with, I hope this discussion and the insights in here go way beyond that. That is my goal in coaching, to help others become fit, connected, and happy in their daily lives. The best version of themselves as athletes, with confidence that it will bleed into all other aspects of their lives. So why the formal intro again? Well, one, it's good to ground ourselves back into the podcast on what it is all about and what I believe in and why after 107 episodes, I want to stay consistent with the same message of the best current athlete version of ourselves and how that bleeds into our daily lives. And actually, like I said last time, takes us on a journey of self-discovery. And because of that self-discovery, we're better there's a better outcome of us in our daily lives, in our daily interactions, um, in our daily self. And with that, though, I often come across this dilemma with a lot of my athletes and prospective athletes um, that are looking for coaching or advice. Um, And a lot of the emails that I get or the updates that I get, it's more the struggle with um, having signed up and and excited for the event the athlete is looking to do. And I would say there's not a week that doesn't go by where the athlete doesn't somehow have some sort of roadblock that comes up in their um, perceived journey towards that future desired outcome. Many of you, and on this podcast I've talked about it frequently, um, have heard me say, that we need to take it slow and diligently. Like I said um, many times, how we need to build this up gradually. And that's basically um, what coaching truly is when you look at it from um, 
a, a master's athlete standpoint. We all went pro in something other than ultra endurance athletics. And that is, we're coming into this with desires, um, dreams of these great adventures or pushing ourselves to a limit, to a new normal, to the far edge of what we deem as possible. And my responsibility as a coach to my athletes, and you've heard me talk about this before, is to coach you where you currently are. Um, it's not putting on the brakes. It's making sure that we start with a platform that we both know is the floor, is our base. And we can start climbing the ladder, start going up the steps towards what you, the athlete, see as the outcome, the vision that what you signed up for, the vision and how it um, unfolds in your mind on how that day or how that adventure or how that race or how that outcome is looking to go. You stick with that. I don't want to take that from you. That's what gets swings those bed, um, swings those beds out of your legs, swings those legs out of bed in the morning to train. Your focus and your vision of you doing the event, the expedition, the adventure, the new normal someday. But my job as a coach is to stay back there where you currently are and coach you and train you and gradually get you fitter from that starting point. Because our excitement, our inertia, our motivation, which is fickle, um, our energy, our tailwinds um, are high in the beginning. And because of that, there's a lot of dangers of injury, overtraining, doing things wrong, heading down the wrong path of fitness, overdoing it, burning bridges with family, burning bridges with work, of taking this all so suddenly like a huge tsunami wave, um, overloading, overflowing, overburdening a lot of people and things around us. And the reason I bring this up is because back to the original point is I read a lot of updates and see a lot of um, comments and have a lot of discussions with people around the struggle um, of getting this training in. And that's what I try to avoid with a lot of athletes to by starting gradually and staying consistent and taking a long-term view and being consistent with maybe not the craziest, longest workouts every day, but over many, many weeks and months that you can reach your endurance goals, uh, maybe not to the best of your ability, but pretty close, 80% of it, um, 90% of it there by being consistent, by being diligent, and not overdoing it right from the very beginning and losing momentum. So I try to connect the current self, the current athlete, with the future athlete that you want to be. And that differential, that space, of course, is the journey we're going to train on. But it's also the time management and the prioritization and the communication that you have with your family and your, with the expectations you create at work because they are pushing back on you, not necessarily in a negative way, but when work requires certain um, time and obligations, it's not like you can say, well, I'm training for an endurance event and therefore can't do it. When family requires certain things, you, it's not like you can say, well, I got to go out and train today. I can't do it. So balancing all this being careful with it, um, navigating through this 
and be having an advocate understanding where you currently are with your training and fitness, where we're looking to go. That is that space between the future outcome and today is what the coaching relationship is. And I want to motivate and instill confidence by good workouts, right? I want to keep you on track. I want to keep you um, on that journey, on that road towards the future outcome. I want to be guiding. I want to advocate for uh, the time for self every day and how that does make a better version of you. But it is a delicate balance because if we overdo it, it becomes too much of an endeavor that limits everything else. Whereas if we're smart about it, diligent, consistent, um, uh, disciplined, it does do enough to, get, again, bring that best version of ourselves forward. That's the responsibilities, right? The athlete stays focused on where they want to be and coaching is about training you where you currently are. And the two of them combined takes us down that journey. And that's why the clarity of purpose is so important with all my athletes and why I think many of you, even if you're not my athlete, should have a clear clarity of purpose. Defining the future in the present. Not using a moving scale or outcome because as we get fitter, it is unhelpful to modify the future outcome, right? Oh, look, I can do this now. I should probably modify the future goal. Not a good idea as we're moving along that journey, along that scale to start seeing, well, I can run these distances. Therefore, maybe I should sign up for a 50 miler instead of a 50K. Or I can hold those wattages. Maybe I should change my bike split goals. Or I am getting stronger. Therefore, I should probably think about doing it this way or a, a better result. That is all fine to think like that. But to put in action um, a different goal or move the scale or move the outcome or move the vision or change the vision is not really what we want to do. And now I know that conflicts. But the challenge there is if we move it, we don't see the accomplishment and the success of the journey so far. And while, of course, you can take a 50K and then project out, well, maybe I can do a 50 miler. The rest of that sentence goes, but let me first execute a great 50K. Let me first apply my fitness and learn and see with the training what I can do, what I can manage time-wise, all the way through this cycle. And if I'm fitter than what I expected, it's great. Then I will let that display itself or mess with that, meaning um, apply different strategies on race day. That's fine. Race day being 50K day. But too often, we start feeling fit, we start seeing the process, we start um, really managing the time okay in the buildup, and we often project beyond our first goal and want to start setting bigger visions of grandeur. And too often, I run into athletes that then really struggle with the next level. I run into athletes that do a 70.3 training, feel pretty good about that, and then move on to Ironman and completely can't manage that. Same with 50K to 50 mile or 50 mile to 100 mile, although there that difference isn't as dramatic. 
but it comes up in many different endeavors um, from the expeditions and the adventures that they have planned to then planning more while they're still in training for the first one. I want you to stay focused on the desired outcomes, the original plan. I will stay focused as your coach on the where you currently are and how to continue to get you fitter, stronger, mentally stronger, physically stronger, enjoy the process, um, go through that journey of self-discovery, ask the questions that you want to ask, balance your life, be an advocate for you on how to keep things in perspective with regards to this training. And then when we successfully, maybe even over successfully have completed that first event, then we can take inventory on what the next steps may be. And I'm in a customer service related industry. You, the customer, are choosing the event. I agree. I understand that. But it does me no good when you are gone, burn all your bridges, question your family and um, work intentions, or they question you, excuse me, and you are out of the sport, burnt out, or overwhelmed, or have that shyness with regards to, yes, I tried endurance training for a while. I did a couple of events, but it was too much on my work and family. I can't anymore. And many of you know from this podcast, I don't agree with that at all. There is a space to do this consistently in a healthy manner with balancing the three legs of the stool and taking on almost any endurance challenge. But it does require a lot of discipline, commitment, focus, care, work by the athlete and communication with me and family and work. The work is a, is a, is a different topic um, because we don't want to share too much there. Um, that on how we're going to manage this going forward, what the expectations are, what we're looking at and continuing to highlight you, the athlete, how focused and organized and disciplined and meaningful you're going about all this. That makes a big difference for your family as well as for you yourself because you become self-confident and proud of your continued diligence with this training. So that is the the biggest dilemma actually in my opinion what endurance athletes face and we've talked about this before but i've come across it more and more that my job as an athlete as an athlete as a coach i have a job as an athlete too um, is to help guide you from where you currently are to achieving the future outcome that you signed up for obviously in a healthy and sustainable manner yes but the sustainable manner has become the most challenging piece for most. Biting off more than they can chew, understanding the hours or the weeks and the consistency that it'll take, and doing things differently than they've probably ever done before. Having to apply yourself in a different way, in a frustratingly slow or consistent way, over many months is new to many people. Even if they've been athletes before, because in the past, some application of effort and consistency has yielded many rewards results. I've seen this myself from my own life. 
But the endurance world catches you in that very quickly. And yet on the other side, just on the other side of that um, discussion is a version of you that feels incredibly fit when they're incredibly consistent day after day, 12, 14, 18, 30 days in a row of doing training and feeling really connected and really growing along that path of fitness. And so this back and forth, this working with athletes on trying to prioritize to manage their day to day, to advocate for them, to help them manage their time, help them prepare for the training, not necessarily the training, maximize the limited time they have. That's what coaching in the endurance world actually, to me, has become more of the, the focus. Um, not because I, I chose that, but more I'm observing that more and more. So why do I bring it up for you? I bring it up on this podcast because that is something you would want to make sure you work through on a consistent basis that you think about, is this sustainable? Have I, am I overburdening um, the other legs of the stool? And am I being diligent and consistent and committed to what I said I would do? Um, and that is often the hardest piece, that last piece. Because if I said I'm going to run 75 minutes tomorrow morning from 6 to 7.15 a.m. So that since that's the ideal time to get the workout done. And instead, you do it in the afternoon because you felt like sleeping. Or you blow it off. Well, that takes that sends a lot of messages. One to yourself. Another one to your overall um people around you who are supporting you on this and help you and see your commitment. But also, it means the night before, the proper sleep. It means how it stacks up in the rest of the week. And when you miss one workout or do it late in the day that day, what will it do to the next day? There's a downstream effect. It takes a lot of focus to do this consistent daily training in order to find the hours that we need in order to do an endurance adventure. This is not a two, three hour event. If it's a two, three hour event, the daily consistent training, not really necessarily. You can do a lot of stuff on the weekends and a little bit of stuff during the week and you're done. But endurance training, ultra endurance training, even more so requires either the hours or many, many, many days, months in a row of consistent training in order to build up that engine. So that's what I wanted to share. So what are we going to talk about this week? Well, I thought it would be fun or interesting to go through some of the uh, Training Peaks emails that I get on a weekly basis again. I know I did that a couple of months ago, and the feedback was quite positive, and I think it captured um, sort of the... Re 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 um, recurring questions and um, the way many athletes sort of have a similar mindset with regards to the training or what they're looking for or how they may be misunderstanding what I'm looking for them to do. So I was going to work through probably a variety of those and if there's nothing in there or we see nothing that's sort of of um, general group interest, it will be a short section on this podcast. 
Of course, I'm going to talk about my Alaska Man strategy prep so far, what I've done, how I'm going into the week. The race is now five days away, and so I'm in the last sort of phases here of getting things organized. I sort of um, can discuss what I, how I go about that and what I look for, and especially what I do with my athletes when I walk them through sort of this preparatory week if they need it. Many have a variety of experience with events, but some are pretty new. And then uh, just also what the strategy will be for something that's so unique, different, I don't have any experience in, and I am doing by myself with regards to something new. Of course, Attilo two years ago was something new to me as well, but I was doing it with a partner, so everything had to be not tempered, but you definitely go about it knowing well, I can only go as fast and do as much as what my partner is allowing me to do or what he allows me to do. Um, but in this case, it's an individual event. So it is more up to me and my effort and my day and my strategy and my observations and um, my fitness. So I'll dive into that a little bit. Of course, I still have two or three more emails that I received and I wanted to give a update with regards to Qatar. And yeah, I think that'll fill out a pretty big podcast um, for this week, episode 108. So thank you for listening as always, and I hope you enjoy this episode. All right, so Training Peaks Insights. This one is from an athlete who just did 100K, and she's one of my um, ultra running athletes. And she gave me sort of a race, post-race update, insights, learning report in her Training Peaks Um update and you know most of it is the details of the race but I did find something interesting in here and she's moving on to uh, Tour de Guyance this year so a huge endeavor a huge event and she's quite fit and quite strong and she lives in South Africa and um, she has opportunities to race and run and train in some amazing uh, locations but to go into her insights, um, I'm happy with the run and how I manage my energy. I do question why I do not push myself more. I run on the outer edge of comfort and seem to have that pacing ability down to a T. Now my question is, am I brave enough to push myself out of the comfort zone? And if I blow, then I blow. I have to allow myself not to be disappointed that I did not run faster. I enjoyed every minute of the run, felt great throughout and afterwards, and feel great in body and mind today. And that, always, that also motivates me hugely to train smarter and allows me to return to training sooner. And really, what more can I want? But there is a part of me which questions, can I dig deeper and out of my comfort zone and really push myself? I know I am brave and can run with my heart, so what is holding me back? So what I like about this question and sort of this self-reflection post the race is something that comes off that comes up often in endurance athletics. And that is as we get fitter, we maintain the same output, the same feel, racing feel, but we're not necessarily pushing ourselves harder. What do I mean by that? That means when we race if we take our third race ever in an endurance event to our 20th race, oftentimes the RPE, the rate of perceived exertion, how it feels with regards to our effort is the same. But as we get fitter, we just go faster 
move faster at that same perceived exertion, at that same perceived output. Now, it doesn't mean it's the same as training speed. She's running faster than training speed. Most of us run faster than training days, push a little bit harder than training days. We're fresher, we're more motivated. We know we're in an event. You put those three together, it yields a better output, a better result, a better pace. But the question is valid that she is asking, am I able to do more? What is holding me back? Well, we also have talked about this on the podcast that once we do these events a lot, have spent plenty of times on our hours and weeks and months and training years almost on our legs, we not only settle into a certain pace, but we also become familiar from a psychology standpoint, what's on the other side of fatigue, what's on the other side of bonking, of being really overly tired, and not from a training standpoint, but from having pushed too hard, from having blown up. And our body protects us from that. There's a very, very deep psychological response there. And it is hard to overcome that. It takes practice, what we've talked about in the past. The practice, the ability to push ourselves beyond what we're familiar with. And yes, it does take the courage, it does take the confidence to be able to say, I am okay with walking if I blow up. I am okay with the outcomes of finding out what's on the other side of this effort. And usually it takes a lot of energy to overcome it. Many a times what happens to us in competition is that something goes wrong and we throw caution to the wind. We go way harder than we usually would. And then we're surprised by how much harder, faster, um, deeper we could push. And that's the interesting part here. Once we take the reins off of the expectations or what we think we can do and throw caution to the wind, we take the ego out of it. We take the validation out of it. The validation being the result that we'll get and how we validate our training and how those around us validate our hard work and validate our athletic prowess and validate um, why we're even putting in all these hours. There's a lot going on in there. Once we throw that out, once we throw caution to the wind because we have a justification, and I often say justification is usually the ego speaking because the ego needs justification. It therefore um, absolves itself. Ego and justification are on a very close um, um, page or they're very closely related. Once we take, when something's gone wrong, let's say a flat tire on the bike in an Ironman, or, you know, something happened during an ultra run, and therefore you no longer have the expectations, you have a good reason on why you did it went wrong. And then either you throw caution to the wind and catch up or push harder or just go or go on feel and all the expectations are off of you. Everyone, there's very few people I've ever come across who aren't afterwards say, wow, I can't believe it. I was just able to go. Or once I didn't care, I just had this anger or this drive or this focus in me. Exactly. It is all about expectations, right? On what we think we can do and we don't want to disappoint ourselves and therefore judge ourselves. 
but it's also learning to know what's on the other side of control, of what's on the other side of what we're familiar with. And it's a very hard thing to do when we're out there in an ultra endurance event. It becomes harder to do that because I've talked about how much real estate remains and we worry on all the things that can go wrong. We have that internal dialogue that says it's good right here. This is good enough. If I maintain this pace, if I maintain this output, if I maintain this overall strategy slash uh, wattage, pace, output, energy level, I'll be fine with the result. And that's the danger, right? The just being fine with it, it means you didn't risk anything. But when you really hit things to a new level athletically, you usually, if you think about it, have always risked something. You've really taken things, uh, thrown caution to the wind. Not necessarily always because something's gone wrong, but because you've actually found something or pushed for something or had a strategy to just let it all go and just throw caution to the wind. Be willing to be disappointed. You risk. That's what the word risk in there is. You risked blowing up. You risked not doing as well as you know you can in order to achieve something new, better, faster, stronger. Right? I mean, this comes, this is the dialogue, this is the discussion I have with a lot of athletes that are looking from a performance standpoint, from a race results standpoint, how to break through. And this is also where I talk a lot about somebody else's head on our body, what they would do with it. It's not necessarily that they're um, taking um, that much more out of their body. They're just willing to risk more with your body than you are. Their experiences, their past observations of what their body, their own body is capable of. Now you put that head on your body, they know what they can pull out of it. It's more of a controlled exertion for them because again, it's taking you to a new level. Can it take it to the next level of what that head on their, your body could do? Not sure, but they definitely close the gap. And so this is the same way you want to think about it when you're pushing beyond your own normal, right? And that is, there is more in me. I'm not going to let the hardwired circuits, the hardwired narrative, the familiar sensations keep me in the zone of mediocrity. And not mediocrity that you're not a good athlete. This is, this is according to your own expectations, and it's like I talked about two or three episodes ago. I'd rather be a one or a two or an eight or a nine or even a 10. But if I don't risk the result being a one or a two, meaning falling on my face and not having a good result, one or a two, in order to find out if I can be a nine or a 10 or eight or a nine or a 10, well, that that's the game we got to play. We got to find out in order to stay away from three to seven, right? Living a life of three to seven, again, our athletic version of ourselves is a small peek into the greater version of ourselves. But living our athletic life, especially races or events or performance expectations in a space of three to seven is not as exciting, is not as invigorating, and you're not risking enough. 
And yes, again, it takes practice to push beyond three to seven. But it also takes practice to be willing to risk to fall on your face, to have the lows, to be frustrated, to be upset, to be in tears, to be depressed, to be overly emotional even about the outcome that you just had. Because internally, you know, either I can do better and I didn't risk enough at the right times, which takes experience and having risked it in the past, or... It takes, man, I fell, I blew up five miles from the finish. I blew up 10K from the finish. I blew up like a champ. But when I was risking it all and I was getting after it and I really laid down the hammer, it felt amazing. Like that race update is a phenomenal update because now we're living, now we're on the far end of what we deemed was possible and we're risking getting out of that pattern. So I hope I described that effectively. Here's another one. This is one of my ultra runners again. Um, Wow, what a wonderful run today. 12 to 14 miles, by the way, all aerobic trails. This is the description of the run. Took her about 2.15. Even the downhills were slow going with the steepness and the rockiness. I'm so pleased to be finding these and running these. Um, Not long ago, I couldn't have seen myself out there doing this. Now it's not even taking as much out of me as I thought. New normal. I was so surprised how great I felt. Even the very end, I felt so strong cardio-wise and durability body-wise, which was surprising given the elevation changes. Um, I I easily could have kept running for twice the time. I wasn't hurting at all. In fact, I just really, I really just wanted to stop at the car to fuel and keep going. So beautiful, so serene. So little comments like that. So I get an update like this. It's a, it's a Sunday update, right? It's late in the week. She's done all her training for the week. And then she absorbed a 12 to 14 mile trail run like that, feeling that good, that strong. So that is exactly what I'm looking for. And how will I take that um, update? I will take a look at her training plan, maybe put in a little bit more work, not much, three to four days, and I'll pull back. Because I'm a firm believer, as many of you have heard in this podcast and in my coaching, that when you have a workout like this, we take that We take that nugget, we take those sensations, we take those observations, we take that confidence, we take that joy, and we bundle it up to to recover from it, to feel stronger from it, and do the next build with that tailwind, with that momentum, and with that confidence that it's working, what we're doing is working. So could she have gone further? Yes, but we don't want more fatigue. Could she have gone further? Yes, but we want two, three more days of good training before we recover a bit and start a new training cycle. Um, Could she have gone longer? Yes, but we have some strength training and some durability to do that I don't want her completely fatigued from. She did some strength training and durability earlier in the week. Clearly the soreness and the fatigue of that is already flushed out of her. Otherwise the downhills would hurt on those quads and those glutes and those IT bands. So 
That is another good example of an update where I see positive momentum and I look into the training plan and think, okay, this next week, it's a transition week. We want to take that high of how she felt and the momentum and maybe give her one or two more workouts. Usually they'll be flat, nothing too long, nothing too trail oriented, but more leg turnover and speed to really tie in all aspects of her running, trail and durability and strength, as well as leg turnover, form technique, uh, proficiency. So we put those together. If those workouts also go well and she feels good, which we're wanting, which we're looking for, then boom, couple a rest day and then a recovery week and then a nice new build again. And then there's this. I felt pretty flat going into this one. Didn't prep well either. I went out from my gym already dehydrated and had neither water nor anything to seem, uh, to eat, assuming I just figured out. I didn't. I pushed through for most of the run, but wasn't overly impressed by my discipline on this one. Yeah, to leave a gym and go on a 13 mile at moderate effort pace feel run, which took him in this case an hour and 45 minutes with already starting dehydrated and already hungry is going to ruin not only today's workout, which would be very um, flat, and therefore flat meaning not of terrain, but flat in energy, but it will leave us depleted for the next two, three, four days of workouts. You can't make up from asking your body to be this taxed and do this extra deep type of work off of a strength workout, off of a core workout, off of a um, some sort of durability workout that he did prior to this, to then go out and do this effort, moderate, true, moderate on feel, no heart rate, just looking for feel, shouldn't be too easy, shouldn't be too hard, just steady. But it's still, it looks like a 1300 calorie burn for that hour and 45 minutes with no fuel. So already in empty, he's going to come out super empty, super dehydrated, super um, underfueled. By the time he catches that up and probably rehydrates and rebuilds his body, it's 36 to 40 hours later. So today's compromised, tomorrow's compromised. You know, the next day, possibly getting a little bit better, but I want to have to modify in order to adjust for that. Or in this case, I'm not going to modify to have him see how we compromised three, four workouts down the road. This could bring on sickness. This can bring on demotivation. This can shake confidence. And although we know it on this day, it's in two, three days from now when the workout is unsuccessful, that's when it shakes our confidence. That's when it um, unmotivates us. That's when we're not as um, mentally set on our progression as we should be. And if we think, oh, it's in the moment, in the present that we did something wrong. No, it's left over from three, four, five sessions ago from this type of lack of um, being an athlete. In this case, he was exercising. He's definitely not training. All right, here's another one, and this is strength-related. This is one of my obstacle course racers. He does um, long-distance obstacle course racing. And uh, he had to do a burpee um, ladder where he had to do a certain amount of burpees every minute and uh, keep going, which means if you do your burpees and are done with that set in 30 seconds, well, you get 30 seconds rest before the next minute starts. If it takes you 55 seconds to do that amount of burpees, you only get five seconds rest. 
And so he was already worried about it going in because he had emailed me and was wondering how he should do this because he knows ahead of time that he thinks he's not going to get enough rest, which is something, of course, I responded, well, we'll find out because I don't want that narrative of, well, I'm worried how I'm going to fail. And um, I'm worried that I'm not going to um, be able to get enough rest. And I'm worried that I might blow up. And this ties into everything we've just been talking about. Yes, we want to blow up. That's why it's called training. We shouldn't be afraid of the fatigue and the pain of training. It is training. It is an opportunity to fail. And so he wrote, well, the burpee reps didn't go that well. First round gave me 20 seconds rest, second 10 seconds rest, and then it was continuous grind that took a total of 14 minutes for 136 burpees. So that's great. I wrote him back. Great. Now we know where failure is, and we know there you are, since next week we do it again. Failure is only a point from which we now know we can progress from. That's my email back. And it's true. The whole point of training in so many aspects is to find out what the limit is so that we can train around the limit and get better at it, especially in strength and especially in durability and especially in these type of intervals and endeavors, even swimming or biking or running. If I don't swim, to failure to my best effort or try to hold with minimum recovery the fastest hundreds I can do or 50s or whatever it is or 200s freestyle or IMs or butterflies. Well, then how do I know what I'm capable of and what my baselines are and where my future failure is not going to be because I want to be fitter, stronger and break through that level. That's the whole point of this entire training concept. In order to progress, we need to know where failure is. More strength work comments. This was the hardest workout yet in the gym. At about six reps per exercise, I was not sure I would ever finish. I just kept my head down and did the work and got through. This training has taught me a lot about what I can do even when it, when all, it seems all is lost. Yes. We are working on our physical self, but we are also working on our mental self. And that becomes the bigger challenge in this case. In a lot of cases for ultra endurance athletics, that's the challenge to overcome mentally what we know physically the body can do. Because it comes back to what I was saying. If you take one of the world's elites in your sport, in your endeavor, and put their head on your body, what would they pull out of it? What more could they do? How many more reps or rounds could they do? So it is truly a mental question. Because another person's head on my body could pull out way more. We're not that different. We've got a three millimeter or whatever level of skin on this meat suit over our body. But under it is fundamentally the same and we can train it and get stronger. But if our mind doesn't go along with that, if our mind gets in the way of our progress and our capabilities and so forth, well, then we will always run up against that ceiling. We will take those steps up or the ladder up and keep bumping up against the ceiling of our mind. And so part of this process of training is that is the mind, is learning to overcome, is putting our head down and seeing where we will end up, not knowing what the outcome is. 
And that ties into so much I've just talked about. Not knowing the outcome is half the work because we live in a society and a mental attitude and approach day by day where we know the outcome, where we know what can happen. <laughs> that was my daughter leaving. Um, where we know what the outcome is on a day-to-day -day basis. So training, our workout session, the athlete version of ourselves on a daily basis, the opportunity to, to blindly step off that diving board, not knowing if there's water or if there's no water in that pool below, but just continuing to do the work, not knowing where failure is, not knowing if we can complete it, but just continuously doing the work, technique, proficient, focus, it is of huge value. Because then when it truly does get hard in competition or when we need it or in that expedition or adventure, we fall back into exhaling, letting go and allowing our body to do what it can do and not what our mind says or thinks it can do. <laughs> and here that same athlete's right, athlete writes, in this case, this athlete is getting wrong, ready for a long SUP challenge multiple days of very many hours, a lot of hours, very many hours on the water, an endurance um, stand-up paddling event of many, many miles per day, five days in a row, crossing a huge body of water. And so I've been preparing him for about the last year and a half, a little bit over a year on getting ready for this event. And he writes, it was a long day on the water. The zone two was not a problem. When I got to the zone three, it once again seemed that after about 15 minutes that I would not be able to keep this pace. Not sure if it is just my mind trying to pull me off the board or to give up. I physically can do the work thanks to the training plan you have prepared. The mental game is equally as difficult as the physical. Correct, yes. But in order to apply the mental game, the mental work, we have to do the physical. We can't skip the physical, right? The physical puts us on the board, puts us that many hours in so that when those challenges creep up in the mind, we have to be physically fatigued. We have to be questioning ourselves. We have to be out there on a training day. That's the endurance training for the mind in many respects of the of being that many hours into a paddle, that many hours into a bike ride, that many hours into a run and not feeling good and not feeling motivated and not feeling fresh off intervals or like you couldn't even do the intervals or being 25 miles into a run and then doing some hill repeats or some strides or something to shock the system out of its steady pace, go all day, rut, and the heart rate wants to stabilize and find steady state and just burn aerobically and sort of go into that slight haze and fog. We've all been there on the bike, on the run. Not sure we want to do that in the swimming, but um, in a paddle or uh, many of these endeavors on a mountain bike where you're just stuck in that same routine and same heart rate zone and same output, it tends to lull us to sleep. And so a lot of times I do prescribe some, some shock to the system late in an endurance day. And that's exactly that. If you don't feel connected and you don't want to do it, that's exactly what we want to lean into in order to do it, in order to get stronger. But we don't find out what we are, who we are, 
uh, until we're that many hours into it. And that's where the training begins in so many ways. That's where the mind starts opening up and challenging us. That negativity sits on our shoulder. But that's also where the soul starts coming into the play, into play. Our spirit, our heart, our true values deep down inside can have a stronger presence into dealing with the negativity. Just this self-talk that this athlete was having, it will allow him to learn more about himself and open that portal to self. And therefore, the negative self-talk, ego, small mind, can be engulfed by that consciousness, by the self, by the egoless self, by the higher consciousness. And to be said with that is that takes experience. And being that out there and allowing those two to sort of duke it out and fight each other, it just brings a different joy of the sport, of your athletic endeavor about you, of whatever it is you're preparing for, whether it's a long hike for many days, this long paddle in this case, knowing that you'll have an opportunity for those two to conflict and deal with themselves, that takes experience and the calmness the next time it comes up to know this will pass, this negativity will pass. And the joy and the appreciation and the beauty that I will recognize from being able to do this, that will be the outcome of my small mind having been engulfed, having been um, surrounded by the beauty, the spirit, the soul of what I'm doing and how much I enjoy it and how much it speaks to me and how much it means to me and how much it makes my heart grow around this endeavor and what I've talked about in the past with regards to creativity and gratefulness and feeling alive, that's the feeling we have afterwards, after we've overcome that negativity, that small talk, that chatter, and feeling the kicking out on the other end. That's what we send sense. All right, as promised, also some final email questions that have come up. And I'm pretty stoked actually to have made it through all these because there's a lot of them. And hopefully I'm not crossing over topics too much that we're just repeating, regurgitating the same information. So, hey, Chris, after learning about you, I began devouring your podcast. I took up long distance running late last year, working on some two base development right now. I'm assuming that says zone. Um, I live in Southeast Texas. Summers are hot and humid, 90s to 100s with high humidity. How do I effectively train at zone two during summer, hot, humid days and nights? Is it possible considering effect heat and humidity has on heart rate? Should I only focus on perceived effort or adjust my zone somehow? This is a good question because it comes up quite frequently not only from my athletes, but in general with the whole zone two concept. And it is quite frustrating in those environments. The challenge becomes that we're back to the essential physiology of what's happening. It's a stress on the heart and the heart is responding with a high heart rate because of the high temperature. So the fatigue on the heart and the pulmonary system and a variety of other functions that are helping us deliver oxygen to the working muscles are compromised because of the heat. And as well, not compromised, but affected, I should say. 
And so the tax on the body remains the same. The training effect remains the same, even if you're just shuffling, jogging along, and in many cases, um, walking. Now, as you're getting into ultra running, there we need to take advantage of the weather windows. And that's what I say, especially for my athletes in Florida and Arizona and Texas and so forth, as well as um, climates around the world, such as um, Australia, Malaysia, um, even China in the summers and other places. Heck, even these days, Europe right now is at 100 degrees. So how to go about it? Well, one, I'm a big proponent of hot weather days of taking a cold shower before you start. Um, at least get the first 20, 30 minutes before that heart rate starts and the internal temperature of our body, our core temperature goes too high and it will affect our training. That's one thing. In Florida, I even have some athletes run shower to shower or run into the ocean or things like that to continue to cool off or pour water on them and so forth. It does get that annoying, complicated, logistically difficult. Um, of course, running early in the morning when the humidity I get is extremely high, but the temperatures might be a bit cooler. So we might have that advantage. We want to take advantage of the weather windows with regards to when it's raining, when it's cooler, um, or a front is moving through. And I get it. That is often rare, and we don't want to go two, three weeks. But what I mean by that is we want to take advantage of the longer runs then in those windows. But overall, yes, um, I'm sorry. And lastly, treadmills and inside running for those type of workouts if you really want to sit in the zone two time for that long also have uh, a benefit. Now, there's a ways, uh, there's a variety of ways to work around this as well besides what I just mentioned. You could also split it up so that your zone two time is that shuffle, walk, jog time, and it's not very stressful on the muscles and so forth. And that your zone three, zone four time, for example, is shorter bursts early in the morning when it's cool, shorter workout sessions when it is indoors on a treadmill, um, and so, so forth. So combining the two, you're still getting your quality, you're still getting your running effect by doing zone three, zone four work for the shorter periods and the shorter percentage of our overall training volume time. And then you're spending a lot of your other time, the zone two time, the big volume time, outdoors, many times walking, shuffling, jogging, you know, even hiking. It is what it is, but the effect for your training, you'll be surprised, is still there. And then once the temperatures cool off, your platform, your skeletal structure, your fitness, your pulmonary system, your oxygen delivering system, your heart, your blood, all that will have significant benefits and gains from the training that you did despite it feeling too easy. There is still that effect. The other thing that's also nice and the, is if you travel at all, that you'll find when you go to a cooler climate, oh, it feels so good, number one. And number two, you'll feel great and you'll see the benefits of your training once again. Um, or when it cools off or however you work into some cooler temperatures. But that's usually what I recommend, yeah. It's, it's tough and it makes it a little bit more difficult. But it also is similar to what other athletes struggle with with cycling on a trainer 
in their basement for many months because it's too cold out, right? And they are stuck doing big hours on a bike on um, staring at a screen or a wall. So everybody has their challenges and this is just one of them. So I hope that helps. Okay, and then the final email of this week, I'm not sure if I've discussed similar, but it is about mountaineering training and a zone one question. Hey, Chris, thanks for what you do, especially how you do it. And I know I did talk about some of this. Your knowledge is obvious, but your heart and wisdom is what sets you apart. So thank you. Yes, I do love this. I do love this coaching. I do love this approach. This approach not being talking about myself, but taking a long-term view, a healthy view, a lifestyle view, a best athlete version of ourselves view and constantly fine-tuning that and honing that message in order for many more of us to continue to display the best athletic version of ourselves and how it then can only improve the overall version of ourselves. When we feel good about that piece of us, it just radiates throughout us and into all parts of our lives. Let that sun hit those shadows of the other parts of our um, personality, of our day-to-day, and therefore continue to have us glow in a positive way. Um, On episode 101, you were responding to another mountaineer about training, and you said zone one is too slow. I'm also an alpinist and use Steve House's book for developing my training. He recommends training in zone one quite a bit. I'm wondering if the difference between your recommendations are different definitions of the zones, or if mountaineering is so much slower that there is a legit reason for more time in Z1, or if I should just be training more in Z2. I'm not asking you to disagree with Steve, but I do want to make sure I'm not wasting my time of training too slow. So I wrote this guy back. Thank you for your email and kind words. I'm um, I'm assuming Steve uses the the five-zone platform versus I am more of a four-zone platform. I use two, three, four, and five. To me... This is what I'm writing. Zone one is recovery, active recovery. And that's why I personally don't use zone one. Um, And many struggle to go this easy. Therefore, I've not applied it for years. Um, I plan to discuss some of this in um, this concept on the podcast this week. Showing up is not half the work. I did that last week. Um, Thanks. And you are in good hands with that book. But his website and coaching is also quite valuable. Yes. So just wanted to follow up here that Steve House is and his website and his coaching is all very, very good, especially when it comes to mountaineering and his experience up there and his abilities and his success with guiding and so forth. Um, So let's just put that out there first. And um, I've actually consulted with a variety of his coaches a few times on some mountaineering things as well as him. But the question here is with regards to the zones. Yes, there are different ways to apply the zones. And um, one could argue, well, Chris, why even use two, three, four, and five if you don't use one? I don't use six either. Um, A lot of times my athletes see me 
used zone six, Z6 in my intervals or things like that, but that's mainly, and when they ask me, well, what is my zone six? My description is it's something harder than zone five. It doesn't go up relatively in the distance of um, distance in the uh, number of heart rate and beats that it's a qualified zone. It's just harder than five. Um, and then same thing for me, zone one, like I wrote here, is easier than zone two. And I rarely use it as well because so many athletes struggle with zone two already, how slow it is and how they have to walk or how easy they have to ride and so forth that instead I just say, you know what, make sure you're going easy enough that it's not taxing, that you're getting active recovery, that it's not stressing the body and the system in any way. And so that's what you wanna keep in mind. Um, yeah, I hope that makes sense. All right, email number two, zone two on less than 10 hours per week. Hi, Chris, I love your podcast with Rich Roll. He and you changed mine and my family's lives. It started with light running to get in shape and listening to him that led me to you. To John Joseph, two years later, our whole family eats vegan, wife, four and five-year-old kids. I'm running three to six times per week, completed a 304 marathon, nice. And my wife is riding the Peloton five to six times per week between being a stay-at-home mom. Awesome. I've learned so much about running and fitness by listening to you. Thank you. I love zone two training concept. I love the zona and followed it religiously most of last year. However, on one of your pods, I heard that it doesn't work that well if you're training less than 10 hours per week. Um, I've chosen to limit my training to approximately one hour per day, midweek mornings. This is a mix of gym and running three to 10 miles and a long run 13 to 27 miles on the weekend. My question is, should I follow the zone two training principle on all my runs, weekend long runs, or explore other plans because I'm not training enough to benefit from it? <laughs> Good questions. And yes, that could have been confusing. Is there a podcast or resource you have out there for this? Please let me know. Um, so good question. Now, 10 hours of running per week is plenty. That's a good amount of running volume per week. So let's um, understand what I meant is probably in the triathlon environment where you're swimming and biking as well, and 10 hours to really have the zone two effect in all three of those disciplines is on the low end of enough. Um, and again, I say that to maximize our limited training time. That's always the concept here. Everything I talk about in these podcasts is always about that, knowing that we're not professional athletes and that we don't have unlimited time. If we did, there'd be a different approach to a lot of this because then the zone two training does stop at a certain point because we've absorbed for the season for six to nine to 12 months as much as we can absorb and due to the training hours available, as well as recovery and sleep, as well as stretching and strength and all that work, there's some other factors that come into play. But because we all went pro in something other than athletics and these endurance sports, and we have other stresses and responsibilities and impacts on our day-to-day, -day, it's talking always about doing this training as not a, as much as uh, the a hobby, but as something on the side, it's part of, of that we're fitting into the rest of our lives, not fitting the rest of our lives into <laughs> our endurance work. That's important to clarify there. 
So if you think about it, 10 hours-ish a week, if you're a 304 runner, that means you're probably running about eight miles an hour. That's an 80 mile a week average average probably let's say there's times you maybe average a little bit more and times you average a little bit less um so that means that's a, a fair amount of running volume and that is plenty so yes the zone two principles still apply there and yes i would still stay focused on the 80 20 percent um maybe 70 30 so 70 percent of the time zone two 30 percent of the time three four or vo2 max zone five ish zone six ish work um spread out over those 30 percent so the other question for you as a runner in general and we've talked about this before is to make sure that the zone two work is still being absorbed because you're doing this type of running volume consistently and therefore, you would constantly want to test that. With that, you would want to do not only the check-in of um, your track test or make sure you're getting lactate threshold tested, because then you can see from your training that not much has changed, and then we need to mix things up, have a different stimulus to affect all your zones properly. Um, but if you're continuing to improve by a zone two work and your paces at a set heart rate continue to come down, good, um, continue on, I would say. Um, make sure you're retesting your no zones so that they're always pretty accurate because somebody who's running 80-ish miles a week or 10 hours of running a week, you know, three to five beats here or there on the top end or on the low end can affect your run paces and your stimulus quite significantly. So those are things I would keep in mind. Yeah, and then the retest is like we talked about. I have a description of that um, in my newsletter, and it's coming here in the next few days, as well as it'll be on the website once I've properly described it in the newsletter. So um, yeah, and then from that retest, you'll be able to see if your times are still moving properly. Um, so you're doing a mix of gym, running three to 10 miles, 13 to 27 miles on the weekend. Sounds like it's all happening there and doing the right thing. So um, explore other plans because I'm not trying. Yeah, I think I um, answered all that. All right. And then the second part of that question, I want to make sure I answer it, is if zone one is too slow um, with regards to training benefit and so forth. Well, the key here is to understand horses for courses, right? So you're getting ready for mountaineering. And yes, hiking under load or even without load unloaded is a lower heart rate taxing um, effort. And so more zone one time is important. Um, it is hard sometimes, on, even with elevation changes, to get the heart rate really out of zone one, um, much out of zone two, excuse me. So not sure how Steve applies his zones, but I do know Steve's entire approach is also very, very predicated on a huge aerobic platform. He believes oxygen consumption and efficient oxygen use via an outstanding aerobic platform is key to any type of mountaineering expedition and abilities. Um, especially in mountaineering work these days and guided work, not if you are the guide. Totally different story, and let's qualify that. Um, but if, if you're doing a, a, a joining a guided expedition, it's mainly about your ability 
to do the activity for many hours. Oftentimes, you're not carrying much of a load because you have Sherpas or um, people doing that. And even if you are carrying your load, um, it is also in we're prepping strength wise and muscularly for that. And so the fitness level is about a, a turnover and a leg turnover and an effort level that is so much slower and it's more just continuous output, which is oxygen based with big muscle groups and glutes and quads and um, hamstrings and so forth, that it is a different approach. And the aerobic platform is vital for this. So um, yes, I would say there is there. So there are a variety of reasons for it. There might be a different way that he approaches the zones, but I don't think it's a waste of time if you're moving, if you're active, and you have a responsive heart rate at those lower numbers. Um, so I think that answers most of it, but you're in good hands with Steve. And um, yes, zone one for my coaching is oftentimes um, because we're biking and running and swimming, less hiking, it is often more about um, active recovery because the heart rate in zone one, when you're doing higher turnover, higher effort things, um, immediately kicks the heart rate out of that zone. So there, I think there's a combination of both going on there without knowing the training plan, without knowing how Steve is applying the data in order to determine zones. Hope that helps. All right, so Alaska man. <laughs> Here it is. It's um, June 25th, Tuesday, and I am going to fly out to Alaska tomorrow. So before I talk about being there, I'll talk a little bit about the last few weeks. And again, I like to qualify these things with this is what I've done for myself and how, what I was thinking of when I was preparing for my racing and training. And also knowing that I have 25 years of consistent aerobic and endurance activity in me and probably 40 years of consistent daily training in me with regards to swimming and running and cross-training strength work and so forth. Um, I've been doing this for a long time when you think about it like that. And I don't think in my life I've ever taken more than six, seven weeks off. And I think we know that from the podcast I've talked about before. But all those swimming years and then right into triathlon years, then right into ultra running years, and then right into multi-day and bigger adventure years. Um, so there's a huge platform that I have. And that's why I got to, I got to, I got to qualify that with um, understanding that my XY axis is been pretty steady for many years. And what I mean by that XY axis, quick um, refresher, all of you know, my biggest concern with new ultra endurance athletes and endurance athletes is that if um, X and Y axis, Y is time, X is volume of doing their the given activity, swim, bike, run, row, um, hike, um, mountain bike, whatever it is, that it was pretty low on the x-axis um, for very long and then all of a sudden in the last two three years two three months 12 months six 12 weeks has shot up and that is a very high likelihood of either burning out getting injuries getting niggles um, the body responding fighting back on not liking what it's doing and so mine has been high 
at a volume for many years of 15, 16, 20, 30, 40 hours a week of training. So um, not that I do that now anymore, but it's been there and it's been a, uh, a constant in my life. And so my ability to pivot to different events, different adventures, different um, disciplines even, has come only from a muscular prep standpoint because my heart and my aerobic energy system and how I burn my metabolism and a variety of other aspects of my body have been consistently doing this for decades. And so I want to qualify that, right? Your classic internet. I am not a doctor. I only play one on the internet. And there we've said that. So that being said, in my prep for Alaska, I had a few things in mind. One, getting ready for cold water. Now, cold water swimming is um, a different animal if you're really in truly cold water because of the hyperventilating and the stress that it immediately causes on the body. And this is not something that you can just mentally overcome. Um, our body has an evolutionary response to water and it constricts and does certain things with the lungs and our um, our response with regards to our brain and signaling. And so therefore, when it's even colder like that, it constricts and makes things and capillaries and so forth. There's a lot of detail in there that I'm not going to go into, but that we fight every time we get in the water. And it takes a little bit in order for the body to loosen up, realize it's not drowning or danger and getting efficient and moving the oxygen so that it helps you do what you need to do with regards to swimming, with regards to being in water. Now that gets highlighted and um, not highlighted, that's gets magnified in cold water. And when I talk about cold water, since this is with a wetsuit, I'm talking about temperatures below 52, 53, 54, you know, 55 and above is quite manageable. Um, obviously, 60s is fine in a wetsuit. So um, the history of this race is that um, Alaska man out of Seward, Alaska is where the swim is, um, is that A, the course has changed twice already um, because it's only three years in the making, the race. And um, yeah, so they're working on the swim aspect because, again, the temperatures are so cold. And... Um, Historically, it's been anywhere from 48 to 52 at that race. So the, that was one consideration with regards to the prep. Swim fitness, I'm not too worried about. Um, I swim usually about three times a week, twice during the week and once longer on the weekend. Um, each workout for me is usually around 4,000 yards. Um, and then longer on the weekend is five, six-ish, even up to 7,000 yards. So I'm all quite comfortable in a pool, but still it is, um, it's more about the swim fitness there and then thinking about how to get ready for cold water. What did I do for that? Not much. The bay in San Francisco is uh, cold. So um, I was able to swim in 56 and 57 and 58 in up to 60 degree water whenever I wanted. I went two, three times and noticed it didn't bother me at all. And so therefore thinking 52, 53 might be more significant, but then I'll have a hood, um, a, a thermal insulated hood uh, swim cap, um, as well as my thermal wetsuit from Roca, 
um, it will keep me plenty warm, which that is, by the way, amazing. Um, and I know I'm sp sponsored by Roka, so take it for what it's worth. But a thermal wetsuit that they made for swimming, it is remarkable how comfortable the water becomes on their thermal lined wetsuit. Um, swims just like a regular wetsuit, but it is quite remarkable how much it makes, you know, the water feel way less cold on your body. And then at least your face, your hands and feet can deal with the heat of the cold water um, because the rest of your body is comfortably warm. Um, they say it's uh, seven to 10 degrees that it makes the water feel warmer. So let's say in a thermal wetsuit, the water's 55. It feels like it's above 60, 62, 63, 64, right? Which... If it's 50 and it feels like 57, 58, 59, I'll take it. Um, so, um, but again, none of that bothered me. So I didn't really spend much time on it. So yeah, that was my swim volume. That's how I went about it. Cycling, um, it is um, a triathlon related course. And so therefore I did start getting out there on my tri bike again, um, once a week only. Um, I'm a big believer and I've had only had success in the past with regards to um, my tri position being very comfortable, quickly adapted to once a week is plenty, a longer ride once a week, two, three, four, up to five hours, and then um, the rest of the time being on my road bike. Of course, I can increase my cycling volume over the last few months since my 50k um, and overall my just in the last few years of doing Otillo swim run and some longer trail runs I needed to re um, engage and re-energize and find fitness again on the bike now do I have fitness like my old Ironman days fitness heck no um, I haven't done nearly enough cycling for that um, and that cycling fitness I had then was so good that I could train um, just very little on the bike, not necessarily um, volume, but I could train very little intensity. And it still translated really, really well to this bike portion of an Ironman, not taking a lot out of me to have the best possible run. So the last three, four months, I've been definitely cycling more. Um, I had a coast ride in January, which sort of restarted my cycling fitness and then from there I've gradually kept it steady and connected and of course in the last eight to ten weeks have upped the volume a bit so that I'm at least getting um, a longer ride in per week and a couple of shorter rides. The Alaska Man bike course isn't that challenging when it comes to technical as well as any type of significant climbs. Um, it's basically on the Alaska Highway and a lot of that is get aero, um, maybe a two, three, four percent grade at times, maybe something a little higher, which is nice because you can sit up and stretch out the back. But most of it is pretty standard cycling up and um, up the coast or up to um, Alaska and Girdwood from Seward. So as I go through that course, you know, it's 113 miles, it's 4,600 feet of climbing, of which most of the climbing is done within the first 50 miles. Um, and it seems like a pretty comfortable grade. I mean, we go up 1,200 feet 
Uh, well, first we go up uh, 700 feet in the first 10 miles, which, again, that's a, um, a, a decent grade, right? 700 feet, 10 miles, which is 7%. Um, and then we have another, uh, looks like 600 feet over the next 30 miles. So, again, nothing dramatic, something that can be done pretty straightforward on a tri bike with the proper gearing. And that's what I was getting ready for. I got ready in training for some climbing um, from some sitting up and getting the mu muscles ready for some climbing work. And then it also looks like this race basically you're done climbing by mile 66, and then it's all downhill downhill and pretty flat there's one little roller again that's uh, 150 feet <laughs> pretty late in the ride but other than that it's a pretty standard straightforward bike course so going by that the work is basically done at mile 66 68 and then from there it's pretty flat or pretty timid um, my fitness is based on an 85 mile bike ride so what does that mean based on an 85-mile bike ride? Well, I want to be fit enough to be strong enough um, to be in control of my bike ride enough that for 85 miles, I feel pretty comfortable. I feel pretty good connected to the pedal stroke. Um, I'm not going to ride on watts. I'm not going to ride on heart rate. I just want to be connected to my cycling position, connected to my cycling pedal stroke, meaning there's power behind it and feel good about riding and comfortable in the aero position and the bike position for what will be four hours, um, 85 miles. Um, the last hour probably might be a little bit uncomfortable, but I'm also okay with uh, backing off as of there and prepping for the run. So um, 85 to what is 113 means that I've got uh, 30 miles of where I'm not really going to be in the greatest physical shape, but because I've fueled and hydrated and feel pretty smooth on my bike the first part, I think I'm um, feeling pretty good about that. So 4,600 feet of climbing, most of it in the first 66 miles, 68 miles. Um, for sure, some steeper stuff and some challenging stuff because of the steepness, but all pretty straight and um, nothing too um, technical. So it's just going to be a solid bike ride. And um, that's how I prep for the bike. Marin County is very choppy, very sudden um, with regards to its elevation gain. I'm on a 100-mile bike ride for me. We get 5,000 feet of climbing comfortably. Um, but they're all short, three, four, five minutes. So it creates a different type of fitness versus long, steady climbs and grades. But that's also why I headed out to or went out to um, <clears throat> Boulder back in late May to get ready for long, steady climbing, long, steady rides. Um, and of course, um, I did that on a heavy gravel bike um, on the road with knobby tires um, just to add extra work and extra difficulty, extra annoyance and extra um, deterrent from uh, riding too hard with uh, a bunch of buddies um, on my own bike. So um, it was quite a joke while I was out there. The fact that here I am on this big, heavy, slow um, gravel bike on regular roads, but it is what it is. And, uh, 
it actually felt pretty good to come back, get on my regular bike and feel a lot more powerful and um, the fitness gains from that. And so then Alaska, oh, um, yeah. And then finally running, right? Um, this is the big challenge. Um, this is the race, basically, in, in my opinion. And that is a 27 and a half mile run. Um, most of it um, on trail or bike path. Uh, and um, a, an interesting approach. So what happens on the Alaska run is that it's about 16-ish miles of not much going on. Um, you're running on a bike path. Um, it's pretty smooth out and back. Um, and then you get to what becomes the meat of the course. Sure, you do have a little bit of running in the Nordic Loop with um, a variety of rollers in there and you have some um, a roller also up to a uh, trailhead where you have to cross a bridge with regards to a tram um, a hand tram no less but until then the first 16 miles it is a 800 feet of elevation game but then in the last 10 miles <clears throat> it looks like a solid five thousand feet of elevation game i think the online notes say about 4200 to 4600 feet of elevation gain in mile 17 to 27 which is a lot you're basically going straight up a mountain twice um, in the last 10 miles of a 142 mile day 141 mile day so um yeah so that's basically the challenge of it so I've done a fair amount of hiking with regards to straight uphill, um, get those muscles ready, strength work, prepared for hiking. I've um, done my usual fair amount of running with regards to trail running, more than any type of pavement running, which I would usually do for Ironman training. And then overall, I've also not done any type of run pace work or speed work or track work or tempo work or anything like that, like I would usually do for road and Ironman because, um, yeah, it's not that it's not it's not the Hawaii I'm getting ready for here. I'm getting ready for an adventure in Alaska. And quite honestly, I enjoy my trails and just going out and running a lot more than the focused um, um, planned approach towards getting ready to run a three-hour marathon on the back end of an Ironman. And that approach requires completely different um, training and a focus than a, a 27 and a half mile run whereby the last 11 miles are on trails. Um, the challenge here physically is what I believe is going to be just... Um, getting to mile 17 of the run of which you pick up your support crew you can have support crew prior to that um, but my buddy taylor will be out there with me and um yeah then we just hike run hike up run down the, the two mountain passes and all that elevation gain and try to finish it out and the key as you all can imagine, and as I would coach anyone getting ready for this, is you need to have your fuel, your hydration, and your output managed to still be able to significantly um, either run, hike, attack, push this section these last 10 miles, or to be able to enjoy and not be miserably, miserable, 
not be in misery and completely overwhelmed and unmotivated in this most beautiful section of the run because you're going straight up a mountain, have beautiful views. It's the epic part of a lot of this course. And so if you're looking just to finish, I would want you to be able to absorb this and take it all in and feel alive and feel great doing it. And in my case, I want to get to that point and still feel good enough to still push and have an effort available, um, still have the leg strength to run down um, 2,000 feet <laughs> at mile 19, 18 and a half, and then run back up again in order to run down 2,000 feet again into the finish. So yeah, it's, um, it's basically going to come down to that, not meaning any type of racing, but come down to those last 10 miles and feeling good for that or feeling somewhat um, able to properly absorb those two big body blows. And with that, the training has been about that. Um, hilly work, trail work, and just off of a tired week to still do some work, trail, trail running and hiking and steep ascents basically up Mount Tam. So now I've never done this race. Do I know this will be successful? No. <laughs> Did I do most of what I can do given my life, given my workload, given my family, given summer and children and everything else and travel. Yeah, I feel pretty good about my fitness going into this event. It's Tuesday before the event. There's nothing I can change about it right now. Um, I'm all shut down. I still did some bigger training all last week, like an 18-hour week last week. Um, and then yesterday, Monday, took an easy swim. Well, no, not an easy swim, but just a swim. Um, and today I'll go for a bike ride here in a bit um, for like uh, 40, 45 miles. And then that'll be it. Tomorrow I'll go for an easy trail run and uh, get on a plane to Alaska. So that's about how I prepared for it. And you might have heard, yes, I did do a f uh, some strength, not a fair amount of strength, but I did do some strength work um, probably once a week, occasionally twice a week. Again, getting the legs ready for the load. Um and the durability of the downhills, especially late, um, as well as to deal with, um, you know, having come off a bike of 113-ish miles and then some fair amount of trail work and then the, the, the climbs, that's the key. It's more a durability question and coming down off of some steeper climbs and being able to handle that and then continue running. That's what I did the strength work fo focused around. Thrusters, back squats, um, box squats, front-loaded squats, um, things like that. Uh, leg blasters, um, all kinds of different leg work to deal with that. So yeah, that was basically my prep. Some of the bigger weeks were maybe 23, 24-ish hours of training. Um, most weeks were probably 16 to 18, closer to 20 occasionally, but not all the time. Um, as you know, I was in Europe, so that week was completely off, things like that. So just making things work however they can fit in. And of course, I realize I have um, time available different than others because this is sort of what I do. But still, 
taking the the version of myself that I possibly currently can put forward as an athlete and I tried to make the best of it and I'm excited I'm excited to head to Alaska to try this new extreme triathlon event all right well thank you so much for listening this week I hope there was plenty of um, information tidbits uh, things that you can glean some insight from in this podcast I'm gonna go Head off to Alaska and enjoy what looks like a beautiful, beautiful location, the last frontier. Um, I'm excited to explore new areas, new territory, and to fully immerse myself into that area via swimming, biking, and running. And it looks like we're going to be mountain biking, fishing, and whitewater rafting, and doing some glacier tours as well. So I think... Having an opportunity to do a endurance event, an ultra endurance event, along with uh, really exploring a, a, a travel location that I've never been to before is really closing the circle on everything that I enjoy about this sport, about the training. And again, like I talked about earlier, the reward of doing the daily consistent work is the next 10 days coming up to really have this um, impactful, meaning on myself, not (laughs) on anything else, impactful um, experience, um, forming memories and images in my mind of um, effort and training and racing and um, nature as well as the entire camaraderie and spirit of the event and carrying that with me for the rest of my life. That's what um, some of these events truly bring about, a new adventure, a new approach to things, um, curiosity being um, a big part of this and just seeing what it'll be like. So I look forward to telling you more about it on the other side. Have a great week, everybody. And um, Next week, I'll be out, so 109 will probably be about uh, two weeks away. Thank you. So, how will I go about this race? Well, again, not knowing the race and sort of going into it blind um, will affect the strategy a little bit. But also understanding that I want to have fun in Alaska. I want to explore Alaska. I want to come to understand Alaska for the first time. I've been there before on a pass-through, but never spent any time there. So I'm excited to just take it all in. Fly up there on a Wednesday afternoon from San Francisco, get in there a Wednesday evening, uh, pretty late at night, let's say 8.30 or 9, I think. Um, It's still light out, which is great. Uh, Work my way to grab a rental car and then grab some dinner Um, because, you know, Afternoon out of San Francisco means limited food, but I'll eat, snack my own food on the plane plenty and uh, stay plenty hydrated, of course. And then Thursday, yeah, do some logistics in Anchorage with regards to bear spray um, and uh, anything else I need for the race. Um, They have some bike shops up there and REI where I'll grab the last of my gear. And then, 
yeah, Taylor and I will head down to Seward, a beautiful drive, pass through Alieska and Girdwood, which is then the top end of the bike course. So as I'm driving down to Seward, we'll get a chance to see most of that bike course and maybe the strategy of my training will be completely off and I'll be surprised on how hilly, technical, and steep it is. <laughs> and it'll be a lot harder than I thought. Oh, well, we'll figure that out. And then I uh, get to Seward, and on Thursday afternoon, you know, check in, get settled in Seward, which, again, never been there. Excited to test it out and try it out. I test it out. But check it out, see what it's like. Um, and then Friday morning is a swim. Oh, by the way, yes, I will not train on Thursday. Um, and Friday morning is a swim in Seward, a test swim from the race organizers. So I will do that and then I'll get my bike ready and make sure everything's good with that and check that in on Friday. You know, Friday is always busy logistics. Go for an easy spin, maybe go for an easy run, make sure everything's working okay. Yeah, and Saturday's race day. So that's basically how that looks. Um, I don't know what I'll be eating up there. It's Alaska. Um, I'll figure out what to eat on race evening. It's a 3.30 um, buses leave for the swim start um, event, which means I will be up at 2 in the morning. Um, so it will take some logistics and planning there. But, you know, it's light out at 4. <laughs> Gets dark at midnight. And, um, yeah, so race night, I'll have some dinner and um, my usual beer. And, uh, yeah, go into the swim and bike and run on Saturday with uh, open eyes. Um, now, the swim's a little shorter than an Ironman swim, so I look forward to sort of pushing that pretty well. Um, yeah, because, A, <laughs> it'll make it warmer. Um, I think the temperature is going to be around 54 but um, I've heard that there's pockets where the waterfalls come down from the snow melt that make it very cold. So that'll be a rude awakening. Just when you're comfortable in your wetsuit or you get your breath back, you probably get shocked into some freezing cold temperatures. You know, if this were anything longer or a more important swim or something like this, I would probably have put on some weight. Um, a lot of open water swimmers, um, that I've worked with, as well as just in general in the community. If you're going to do a long open water swim with wetsuit, without wetsuit, but you're exposed to cold temperatures, um, some extra fat on you and some extra weight on you is quite important. Um, it makes a big difference. But in a thermal wetsuit with a thermal cap, um, I think I'll be okay for that hour. And um, yeah, hopefully I can be... Uh, pretty far up front, if not up front off that swim, and um, get on that bike. So um, no, I will not be warming up for the swim. <laughs> if it's that cold, I don't want to be anywhere near that water until I have to be. But as many of my athletes know, I will be quite hot and overheating in my wetsuit before I even start. I want my core so warm that I'm going to be looking forward to getting into that water. Um, so that there's a sort of offset to counter that um, mental and that physiological response of water hitting my body and that cold water in general. So um, that will be the strategy. Nice and loose, nice and sweaty, nice and hot in the wetsuit before I start. Now, I don't know how long they keep you in the water before you start, but hopefully not too long. So 
4.30 a.m. start, um, swim for an hour, and then, uh, yeah, oh, my breakfast that morning will be quite significant. I usually eat about 1,000 to 1,200 calories, and then uh, and that's easy for me to get in, um, easy. Um, I, can, I can pound down a good amount of food, and um, yeah, then I'm on the bike, and uh, yeah, so for me, the important thing on that bike is A, get your body temperature and get settled in on the bike early on, uh, especially after that swim. Um, start getting some fluids and fueling going um, pretty early on. It looks like given the course and the profile, I'll want to have that going before the um, the bike gets too steep. And so therefore, I'll probably look to get in a fair amount of calories within, ooh, I would say by mile um, until the longer climb comes. I mean, the first 10 miles, that first climb, I probably won't overdo it. Just get some fluids in and maybe even some electrolytes. And then the next 25 miles, 30 miles before the, the longer climb comes to get in a fair amount of calories. Now, this is a self-supported race. What that means is, is that there is no support before mile 30, so anything I have on my bike, and there is no support after mile 85. In between that, there is no, there are no aid stations. It's your support crew in my rental car. Um, and so whatever I have in there, um, food-wise, I'll restock or he'll give me new water bottles or new bottles or new water or whatever I need. And we'll have coordinated that prior of looking at the course profile and, and the course maps and so forth where that will be. Um, again, I have the luxury of being pretty far out front um, with the front group or pretty far in the front of the race or maybe even leading the race, I don't know, given my swimming. So it makes logistics in that respect pretty easy. Um, again, I, I, that's my background. I'm sorry, but that's just how it is. Um, yeah, and then staying well-fueled for that bike. Um, if I'm feeling good and if the body is responding well, Maybe I'll push a little bit on the flats late, mile 75, once I'm off the, the climbing portion, get arrow and see what happens. But again, nothing too dramatic, letting this bike ride and letting this day unfold in front of me, allowing fitness and years of doing this and experience and sort of that deeper athlete, um, that fitter um, experienced athlete deep inside of me sort of come forward and let it do its thing. I've found that quite often in events um, over the past years where I've not really focused on any type of result, but instead letting the day happen. And remember, I haven't done a triathlon in, uh, in a year. Last year at um, uh, Whistler, um, Ironman Whistler, I did the same thing. I just sort of allowed the experience, and it's an Ironman, and it's an MDOT event, so I know exactly how it unfolds, where it unfolds, how to race it, and so forth. So it's a little bit different, but I'm going to do similarly here that allow the fitness of the bike and the run to sort of display itself, um, happen, and uh, from there, um, see how it shakes out, how I'll feel. If I need to back off at times, knowing that I have a pretty hard run ahead of me, I will. Um, I'd rather have a good energy level throughout the entire day than try to do things at the wrong time, spend energy at the wrong places or the wrong sections of the race. So 
coming off the main pass at mile 68 and sort of taking inventory at mile 70 to 75 will give me that opportunity to sort of say, all right, where are we? Get some fuel in here, get some hydration in here before I lose support from mile 85. And maybe just, you know, go into the fear position, what I call focused, efficient, aero, relaxed on the tri-bike. And then, yeah, the run, you know, of course, oh, I should say, as usual, my 250 to 300 calories an hour on the bike, again, trying to eat a fair amount for this taxing longer run. Um, I don't want to get off this bike being in any way uh, low on anything. Um, Temperature should be um, quite comfortable, not very cold. It looks like it's going to be 75 to 80 in Alaska. So my California weather will have prepared me well for a hot day and some humidity even. And um, so I'll be able to eat and drink quite reliably, just like I do at home, and hopefully come into T2 feeling topped off, of course, not fresh, never are any of us fresh, do we feel great, but good enough to start finding the running legs. And that's the beauty here too, on this course, if I, if the way I look at it, is you have time for six miles, four, five, looks like five miles are pretty flat to find the running legs to settle in. Um, The rollers begin at about five and a half to 16, nothing too dramatic, but you know, nothing that's just pancake flat. And uh, so just run that, get through that. Like I say to a lot of my athletes, that part of the course is something where you're just thinking, just get me to the far end of this section of this course. Strategically, this race is broken down into two pieces, the rolling flatter part and the climb. And get the climb, uh, get the rolling flatter part done with using as little energy as possible, going as fast as you can, right? Though combine those two concepts, little energy as possible, fast as you can, means there's a sweet spot in there that you're running well enough, but you're not taxing yourself, digging deep, or doing anything that compromises your ability to still get these last 10 miles done. And then there it is, 10 miles to go, up a mountain, down a mountain, back up a mountain, and down a mountain. And um, literally climbing 2,500 feet, coming down 2,500 feet, going up 2,500 feet, and coming back down 2,500 feet. Um, Do that twice, and you are at the finish line. So within that, of course, like I keep saying, to be well-fueled for that will be key. The body will be tired. The muscles will be fatigued. um, Changing muscle groups to a hike up that climb, up that mountain, because it's way too steep. You gain... um, what looks like 2,500 feet in one, in um, 16.28, in two miles. Um, so that's steep. That's basically straight up a mountain. 2,500 feet in two miles um, come down basically the same thing um, in two miles and then go back up. So in order to handle that, we want to be hydrated and well-fueled and then be able to sort of make good decisions, make the decisions, also descending, good footing, um, not hurt myself, take it all in, enjoy the scenery. It looks gorgeous up there. If you want to see what it looks like, Alaska Man, um, the website has some great YouTube footage of what the race looks like. And yeah, 
try to come in and be able to run down that last hill. If the legs are still available for that steep descent from mile, what looks like 23, all the way back down, that would be awesome. <laughs> so that's sort of how the race would go. Um, on the run, fueling means 200 calories an hour minimum. F hydration on the bike means 28 to 30-ish 34 ounces per hour. Um, I do mostly water. I'll mix in the occasional electrolyte drink. Um, depends on what I can get from the car. And then on the run, because of the difficulty of the course, um, I'll eat a little bit more and try to stay well hydrated. The other aspect is you're running with a vest and some weight. We have to have bear spray with us. We have to have our cell phone with us. We have to have light uh, um, clothing with us in case it gets cold at night and things like that which I hope it won't for me, meaning that I'm out there that long. Um, and so a typical trail running vest with basically all the stuff in it. So I'll have my fuel and hydration in there and run with that. And so for the hike up, definitely top off that I, so I can run down, things like that. So logistics like that, but also make good cognitive decisions throughout the day because I'm not spending it on my fitness. I'm spending it on strategy and execution and how I envisioned this day to go over the next few days. That's what I'll also do. It's Tuesday. I'll spend some time over the next day, few days closing my eyes and envisioning how I want the race to unfold in front of me. Now you might say, well, have you not been doing that for the last few months? I have been. Of course, I have a vision of what this will look like, feel like, and go like in my mind, but I'll continue to fill in the details of that day more and more as I close my eyes and spend some time literally doing that exercise. Um, and it'll also help me prep for the event, make sure I don't forget anything, think of things that might go wrong and so forth as I go through each discipline and how I want it to unfold and how I want to be eating and what I want to be drinking and how I see aid going and how I see myself running and how I see myself swimming and how I see myself moving through transitions and how I see myself doing the entire day. It helps pack, prep, think about the entire day. So yes, that's Alaska man. Um, finally, I would think Yes, like I said, I'm not wearing a heart rate monitor. I'm not wearing a, I'm using a power meter. It's all on feel. Again, just the approach of this race because it's not an Ironman. I just sort of want to exhale and let it, let it just be and have fun with it. Um, I never worry that I go too hard. Um, I'm too conservative for that and, and I'll trust my diesel engine for that. Um, so... That means on the bike, I probably won't have any data um, because I need my watch to last for both. I'm not sure. I'll have to check how I'll do that. Um, but again, since I have support crew and he's wearing a Garmin, maybe we'll do a combo of switching watches or something like that in T2 when I see him because uh, he's able to run with me for the entire run, but he's required to run with me the last 10 miles. And so... Um, and I think that's for safety reasons, bears, moose, as well as ankles, um, any type of injury, it's pretty remote, pretty up there. And so um, you do have, it's mandatory to have support on the last 10 miles, the steep, difficult section. But that being said, yeah, just on feel. 
and that'll be fun from that perspective. Usually I give myself wattage ranges and paces that I look for, um, but no, it won't happen here. Um, I will wear a watch on the run, mainly to know where I am on the run course with regards to time and distance, um, for fueling, as well as for pacing with regards to um, overall, but not because I think or have any vision of a pace going up 2,500 feet in two miles. And even if the first 16 were at a certain pace, that all goes out the window once you start hiking. So I'm not um, going to put myself into that trap, into that prison of time expectations or paces um, for this day. So yeah, that's Alaska, man. So hope you all gained any type of tidbits out of that. And um, I will let you know how it goes on the other side next week. So thanks.